Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to FYI. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Tasha Keeney, an analyst at Arc, and I'm joined today by my partner analyst Sam Corus. We're here to talk about innovation and how our particular topics of innovation are faring in today's times in the time of coronavirus. Thanks for listening and feel free to check us both out on Twitter. I'm at Tasha Ark and I'm at S Chorus Ark. All right. So in the spaces that Sam and I cover, there's a lot of, I'd say, you know, slowdown and sort of gloom happening right now. So in any industrial production setting, a lot of factories are closing. There's a lot of pause on production. There's supply chain shortages across the board. And we're seeing a lot of companies, particularly in the auto industry, struggle. I mean, we just saw Daimler announced they're looking to get an additional $10 billion of debt. So, and we're seeing a lot of companies pull guidance as well. So there will be a lot of turmoil in the short to medium term, but we do see many types of new technologies are taking hold. And that's because in times like this, companies have to look for better, faster, cheaper or potential solutions to the problems that they're having today. And that's where a lot of our technologies come into play. So today we're gonna talk about a number of topics. We're gonna talk about autonomous driving, drones, 3D printing, automation, and online education. I think we'll start off talking with autonomous technology. This is one area where we're seeing some increased usage. Autonomous driving or autonomous robots provide contactless delivery. So we're seeing in China, Meituan, JD, and Alibaba are all using different forms of autonomous robots that roll or drones. They're delivering food, groceries, and medical supplies as well. And what's interesting about this is it seems as if these companies are now able actually to test more than they otherwise would have. The conditions are a little bit safer. There aren't as many people on the road. And it's, again, something that the customers of this are actually craving because it involves no human contact. So it makes this technology safer than I think what it's traditionally considered or by some considered, you know, sort of like scary and without, you know, to not have a human driver might alarm some people. But right now, that's actually what we want. Um, That's right. So talk about what's happening with Waymo in the U.S., Yeah, that's a good point, Sam. So in the U.S., so Waymo's been testing autonomous driving in California and Phoenix and a few other areas, and they've actually paused operations for every car that has the safety driver in the front still, but they're only running their fully autonomous vehicles on the road. So, you know, again, this, while we've seen some sort of survey work in the past show that customers are 
you know, might actually be afraid to get in an autonomous car without a human. So, so first, we think it'll be mostly driven by the economics. We think these are going to be a very cheap ride-hailing options, and that's what people care about the most. But you could imagine that you might actually feel more comfortable sort of coming out of this pandemic in a situation where you, you don't have to deal with that human contact. And I think exactly what you said, you know, it's accelerating these trends that were already happening. JD often talks a lot about how they're delivering with drones in rural areas. But then when this happened, they're now starting to do this in cities. And I thought a pretty funny example of this was Geely and how they were doing contactless deliveries of car keys to customers with drones. Yeah, I saw those drones. I was disappointed. I'm sure you saw the video. There's a person remote controlling them. But yeah, it sort of adds to that overall topic of people are looking for that contactless solution now, whereas before there was like there was a little bit more resistance. And you know, related to the autonomous delivery work, I think Sam, your research on rolling robots is really coming into play here. So so you've done a lot of work sort of sizing that opportunity and how cost competitive it'll be. Yeah, so I think this ties in really well with what you were saying about autonomous vehicles and how, you know, long term, we think this is really going to be driven by the economics. So we've done the work and the cost of delivery by a human is roughly a dollar and 60 cents per mile, whereas with an autonomous delivery robot, it could be as low as six cents per mile. And so the economics makes sense. But I think as we're seeing, no one really wants to try something new, but now everyone's forced to. And so all of a sudden, you have a huge demand for rolling delivery robots. And this isn't just taking place on the streets. You know, we're seeing it in hospitals, too, for delivering medicine from one room to another just to reduce human contact. So I think this is another perfect example of that happening. And then I think in addition to these technologies happening with the auto industry in particular, right, you see the autonomous vehicles taking off while you have factories shut down. What does this do to the overall industry? Yeah. So, you know, Sam, our work in the past, we've always thought that the auto industry would consolidate. And it seems like a lot of companies are struggling and that might actually happen sooner than we expected. And so, yeah, I'd love to, you know, hear you remind us of what happened in the horse and carriage times. Yeah, sure. So at both in horse and carriage and in the auto industry. So at the turn of the century, it was a pretty remarkable time, right? You had the moving assembly line coming online in the 19-teens. And at that point, you had roughly 4,500 carriage companies. And within 10 years, that number dropped by over 96%. So very dramatic. And then similarly, in the US, if you look at auto manufacturers in that same time period, you went from roughly 275 auto manufacturers down to just below 50 in 10 years. So the auto industry, I think, is relatively comparable to that time period. You have this huge transition, not just to electric, but to autonomous as well. And I think there are a lot of traditional automakers out there who do have a lot of debt, who aren't aggressively investing in technology. And so we might see this consolidation start to happen. Yeah, certainly. It seems like the companies. So the companies that are well positioned, right, are those that have credible electric vehicle or autonomous strategies. So Tesla's a great example of that. But it seems like companies that are sort of, you know, stuck in with sort of an old DNA mindset, haven't gotten that far on their electric platforms. What do you think will happen to them? 
So I think, you know, we've already started to see some of the consolidation. I think, you know, China is a great example. Obviously, the largest auto market, they had a boom of EV startups because funding was available. So you had, you know, all of these companies starting just saying that they were going to be an electric vehicle company and never producing a vehicle. And so I think, you know, this will really start the shakeout and we'll see that consolidation happen pretty quickly. But I also think, you know, it's, it's not just the traditional automakers, but it's also the way that we travel is transforming, right? So now we have ride hailing as an option. How do you think that plays into this whole saga of this transition? Yeah, ride hailing is interesting because certainly, you know, at first here in the U.S. when we started getting more orders to, you know, stay home from work, people seem to be a little bit more inclined to use ride hailing vehicles over, say, the subway. But then, you know, as those measures became more restrictive, people were coming out of their homes less. Seems like now you don't want to use any option, right? You just want to walk. You don't want to be in a vehicle with another person. But it seems like coming out of this, that people, once again, might be more inclined to stay away from those mass transportation options. So that could be the subway, or it could even be something like short haul flights, right? Mm-hmm. And then you also have the supply side of, right, you have this jump in unemployment and a huge number of people looking for a job, which, you know, it could be ride hailing. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, Tesla has said that they will eventually launch a ride hailing platform with drivers at first before they go to a fully autonomous driving platform. So, you know, they'll get to know sort of the ins and outs of the business, how the payment processing, sort of get that all down. But it's also a good strategic opportunity for them because they can collect additional data for autonomous driving and sort of feed that R&D effort if they get these highly utilized vehicles. So this could be actually a good time for them to launch coming out of, you know, the die down of all these restrictive measures that we have to take for COVID-19. And they could sort of kick Uber and Lyft when they're down almost because, you know, these companies right now are seeing sort of decreased usage and they're also less willing to take new drivers onto their platforms. In fact, Lyft is not accepting new drivers right now. So there could be this, you know, pent up demand, as you mentioned. And it, it certainly seems like, you know, we've always thought that autonomous driving could take over these shorter distance flights and that, you know, the adoption of that or, or sort of that transition could happen sooner than we thought. And then could you just walk me through, because I know when we were discussing it, right, obviously when you get to fully autonomous, this tremendous software-like margins, recurring revenue, as opposed to one-time hardware sales. And so then where does ride hailing fit in the stopgap? I know it gets you some recurring revenue, but you know how far along that spectrum does it move you? Yeah, well, I mean, it does, as you're saying, it changes the business model for Tesla from a one-off sales model to more recurring revenue stream. So Tesla's in a really interesting spot because, you know, based on your work, Sam, we know that electric vehicles are cheaper to operate. So Model 3, we think, is about two-thirds the cost on a per-mile basis of a Toyota Camry in this situation. So that makes it a really attractive platform. So Tesla could, you know, both take a higher cut of the gross revenues, but it's also a better equation for the take-home pay for the drivers, potentially. So Uber's long-term goal of EBITDA margins on ride hailing is something like 45%, which does seem kind of high. But, you know, if you look at a player like Tesla that's going to verticalize on the insurance, they could offer attractive financing to bring people into this program potentially to become drivers. You could see them getting certainly north of whatever Uber or Lyft get. 
sounds like we're going to have to come back and do a whole new podcast on this one topic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, that's right. Yeah, here we are again diving into it. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, on that, we're, we've been talking a lot about the auto industry, but, you know, autonomous technology comes into play in, in a lot of other form factors. Something you and I have done a lot of work on is drones. So we talked a little bit about drones that roll, but we're also seeing drones that fly. A lot of small form factor drones are being used in places like China and South Korea to spray disinfectant or even to take temperatures of people. Some of them are being used in delivery use cases. You know, we think drones could deliver packages for less than a dollar, say it's just 25 cents. And it certainly could, you could see, similar to autonomous, the regulatory stance on this changing. So that's important for these smaller form factor drones because regulation is much more restrictive over any vehicles that fly versus something on the ground. But Sam, it'll also help accelerate, you know, what you think is going to happen in the air taxi industry, right? Yeah, I mean, I think all regulation kind of moves together in these times. So if you're going to approve out-of-sight drone regulations, that's definitely beneficial for air taxis or even just setting these rules down so people can continue to expand their testing beyond the geographies today, like China, Australia, New Zealand. And, you know, maybe we'll even see the U.S. start to move faster to catch up to some of those other regulatory regimes. I also think that unrelated to this, but just on the regulation front, something we saw that we'll get to later with online education is the American Bar Association is kind of changing their guidelines for online education because, right, everyone's moved online now. And so you have to adapt to these times. So I think regulation across kind of everywhere that we're looking is moving in favor of these solutions to the crisis that we're facing now. Yeah, that's a great point. And it seems like, you know, not just on the regulatory side, but on the consumer behavior side of things that you could again see certainly a pull forward, but also a behavioral shift towards using some of these technology platforms that came sooner than we would have otherwise expected. Like e-commerce is exploding right now because people don't want to go into stores to buy things. We've always thought that drones could deliver a pretty substantial portion of e-commerce. You can see e-commerce taking a larger share of retail sooner than we would have anticipated. And for food delivery, this could also be a big thing, right? I mean, we think that drones could really accelerate food delivery spend as a share of total food spend. And Sam, your work on this could go all the way into the back end. You've done some work on automating food prep. Yeah, people would probably much prefer that a robot's preparing their meal right now versus a person. That's 100% right. You know, robots don't sneeze. I think that's the new tagline (laughs) of the robot industry. But you're exactly right. And there have been anecdotes from a number of these startups. One of them, in fact, is that robot Flippy, which is a robot arm that flips burgers. You know, we've looked at it and it doesn't seem like an ideal solution for what you'd ultimately want your automated kitchen to be. But the CEO said they're getting flooded with requests from huge companies because one, exactly like you said, customer demand is there for the sanitary preparation. But then also, you know, everyone's on lockdown. So you have employees who are stuck at home, can't necessarily come in. And so if you want to continue to operate, you need to automate. And I think this is on a more macro level, super interesting because most robots are traditionally sold into the auto industry. 
And even though that trend has started to shift, this is another catalyst that's forcing, you know, warehouses, food, small manufacturers to start to embrace automation. Yeah. So we're sort of seeing automation across the board. I mean, this is, you know, in, in sort of delivery, but also factory operations. Right. Not just on the factory floor, but automating services. So, you know, Domino's is famous for their automated delivery system. You call into the store and it's pretty much a robot handles your order and they do a great job at it. Uh, (laughs) But there's an information piece that came out talking about Amazon's Alexa service. And there's been an increase in demand for that as well. Yeah. Okay. So this is food delivery. It's on the manufacturing floor. Yeah. Did any other use cases that we didn't cover yet? I feel like that covers a lot of them. Yeah. You know, another area where you could see certainly a, a pull forward of something that we we always thought was going to a trend that was always going to take hold. But and I guess so related to automation, three D printing, which is a form of automation. You know, right now we're seeing. We do think that in the short term, capital spending could affect whether or not you're ready to purchase a 3D printer. But another side of this is you can see 3D printing take hold. Airbus first started using 3D printing on basically certain part runs because they needed to fulfill a contract order and they weren't going to be able to do so in time with their current technology. And then once they started using 3D printing, so they used Stratasys technology, they kept on using it for those parts. So we saw it's work its way into the aircraft industry by that particular part shortage need. So we're seeing a lot of part shortages in the auto industry, but I think it's going to be across every industry. It's going to be aerospace, all these companies that are slowing production, also companies that are getting their supply chains disrupted by now, either you know because they're sourcing from China or other places that have been affected by coronavirus. So you could see this shift in mindset of manufacturing firms that you might want a supply chain that's closer to home. And 3D printing gets you that. It can shorten the supply chain. It can bring you more localized and could make you less reliant on, you know, another company that, or another sort of tie to another country that could be burning you right now, basically, because of all these sort of stoppages that we've seen. And then how about the uh, use cases for 3D printing as a direct response to COVID? I think those have been pretty exciting as well. Yeah, that's a great point. So actually, yeah, you were the ones that found this article that pointed out to me in Italy, there were some older ventilators that hospitals were looking to refurbish, but they needed replacement parts. They weren't going to get the replacement parts in time if they went to the original manufacturer. So they looked at 3D printing and they 3D printed these valves basically a new plastic piece for the ventilators. And then they were able to get patients on them, you know, up and running, getting the support. So we're seeing 3D printing go into replacement parts. We're seeing some projects, Spain just announced that a group of companies was working on an entirely 3D printed ventilator for some applications. And then we're seeing a lot of 3D printing firms make these face shields that you can put over your mask if you're a doctor or nurse, anyone in a healthcare setting. and then. Yeah, there's an initiative here in the U.S., Massachusetts General Hospital. It's called Covent-19. And it's basically looking to, you know, get a new respirator option that's much faster to produce that could use 3D printed parts. So Stratasys is taking part in that, for instance. So 
yeah, after we've talked a lot about automation, 3D printing, let's switch topics. Sam, you've done a lot of work given our automation thesis sort of on and how you think this is going to affect, you know, education and, and retraining. And there's a particular interest in education right now. So tell me a little bit about that. We don't think that automation is going to remove jobs. We actually think it'll add jobs, but it will displace people. And so there's going to be this huge need for retraining. And I mean, to use kind of a perfect example of the capability for that. And I mean, right now is kind of a highlight for online education. If you look at to use transcripts going back six years, one of the things they always say is, you know, one of the headwinds is just convincing people that online education can be done as well, if not better than in-person education. And then with coronavirus, all of a sudden you have pretty much every single university switching to online classes in a second, right? And so it's obviously a different level of online education because right now, you know, the main solution is a Zoom classroom where everyone just jumps in and you can obviously have a much better experience if you're doing a combination of asynchronous and live settings so that the live settings are more dynamic and discussion-based as opposed to a lecture setting. But, you know, TU's been working really hard to bring their own schools online who had online programs, but also a physical counterpart. So then bringing all the students who were in person for a degree now joining their online section. And I think it's interesting, you know, they've got a partnership with the London School of Economics where they're starting to roll out undergraduate programs as well. And the head of that school was speaking at their analyst day saying, you know, he's had professors who absolutely never would have considered teaching online come to him and be like, you know what? Teaching online is pretty fun. It's pretty good. So it's kind of a perfect example of, you know, people are set in their ways until they're forced to change. And then they realize the upside potential of that new technology. And then also another way it's tying in directly to coronavirus is mm-hmm. one of TU's programs is Yale's physician assistant program online. Obviously high demand for that right now. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, there's potential that they could, you know, bring a huge class size online that wouldn't necessarily be capable of handling in person to provide more physician assistance in this medical emergency. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, they could even expand that to sort of other areas that need this sort of immediate education, right? Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I I definitely think it's interesting. And especially, you know, universities have been around some for a thousand years, right? So they've been around, they've had time to settle into their ways. And, you know, we're really at this tipping point where everyone's forced to embrace this move to online. Yeah, well, we've talked a lot. Oh, that's a bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, so the auto industry has been set in its way. The education industry that you just pointed out has, you know, there's these practices that have been going on for hundreds of years, even longer in some cases that we're seeing change now. So really exciting time for us, Sam. I think we'll, we'll see a lot change in what we're covering over the next few months. Absolutely agree. And we look forward to you guys all joining us on our next podcast. Feel free to ask us questions on Twitter. Yeah, so tune in, keep the conversation going with Sam and I. And thanks for joining us today. 
Ark believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that Ark believes to be reliable. However, Ark does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from Ark. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.